0: I want to say how much I appreciated the testimony of Letty and uh, also the, the message we've heard here during the weekend. You know, a lot of people have an unusual way of looking at prison. It's become a home to me in seven years. A lot of people are afraid to go there. A lot of people are afraid of the people that are there. I want you to know that I'm happy to go anywhere for Jesus. How about you? And you know, when you stop and think that we serve the great I Am, we serve a God that can dry up oceans, a God that can make water come out of rocks, is there anything to hold us back from going to prison? And yet we realize today that in the British Isles, including Scotland, there's never been an organized prison work in the history of the world and you know, listening to Lot Letty's testimony and the experience you had, maybe think about prison. Can you imagine someone that hasn't eaten for twenty-five years? How hungry do you think they'd be? Pretty hungry? Very hungry? What do you think? Almost dead, right? Would you open your Bibles? I know you have your Bibles to Matthew 25 I don't have much time let's turn to Matthew 25 for a moment Matthew 25 speaks about the experience of the sheep and the goats if you look at Matthew 25 begin at verse 31 this is what Jesus says when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. Is anyone left out? All nations. And he shall separate them one from another, and the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, and the goats On the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, And ye clothed me. I was sick. And ye visited me. I was in prison. And ye came unto me. And look what the righteous say. Then shall the righteous answer him. Saying, Lord, when? Saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee? Or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we... Thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee, or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, He'll say to the righteous, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me you look at that scripture and you know I see I see the Seventh-day Adventist church and if you look at the series of events he's talking about the ones that are hungry thirsty do we feed the hunger the hungry people don't we have relief societies the Adventist Relief Society we have a disaster in Bangladesh we send millions of dollars worth of food and grain don't we Don't we? Naked, you clothed me. We take strangers in, don't we? I've seen many. Many have taken me in to their homes. Sick, look at the hospital system we have. Though it's in sad condition. Though we've gone away from the blueprint, we have a great hospital system. We've taken care of the sick. Yet in the prisons, We're totally negligent, absolutely negligent in fulfilling what Jesus said the righteous would do. Think about it for a moment. In the little time I have here, I want to invite you to prison, and I pray that I can create an interest in each one of you here. When you go to prison, you're actually visiting your relatives. Did you know that? That should make you feel at home, shouldn't it? prison life is a very lonely life and I want you to know that with all my heart I believe there's an entire Seventh-day Adventist church in prison not just the baptized members that are inmates but there's an unknown untouched, undiscovered Seventh-day Adventist church sitting in prison in England and Scotland and in all around the world Do you remember when you first heard the message? When those lights went on in your mind? When you first discovered Jesus? What is the good news today? What's the good news of the Seventh day Adventist Church? Matthew one twenty one. No! Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Do you realize those men in prison have never heard that before? Sometimes we take for granted these truths we have. The Sabbath. How many inmates know about the Sabbath? And if they don't hear about the Sabbath, they'll receive the what? The mark of the beast. The nature of Christ. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we can hear both things, can't we? The truth and the error. These men haven't had a chance. I want you to know what happens in prison is you're finding people who have never been corrupted by the false doctrines. I dare you'll look very hard to find a Laodicean in state prison. Isn't that good news? Someone who hasn't gone to sleep, these men haven't woke up. They don't even know what's going on. In prison, you're in another world. It's like going to another planet. There's another language there. Another set of morals, values. And yet in state prison, God's people are. Men and women who Christ died for. Haven't you ever wanted to just... Once and for all, just share everything with someone. Tell them the truth straight out. Don't take three or four weeks to have a study on the Sabbath. Just tell them the truth. And then show them in the Word what God says about it. That's what happens in prison. Straight testimony, that's the only way it works in state prison. We've talked a lot about straight testimony, haven't we? And that testimony today... The straight testimony. How about prison? I want you to know that in prison, God works. I want you to know that he works miracles in prison. I want you to know when you go to state prison, he'll send his angels with you. I want you to know there's absolutely no reason why you can't go to state prison. With the little time I have, there's so much to share. One night in state prison, I work in California where soon we'll have more inmates than any country in the world, or 75,000 inmates. One night there was a group of inmates that were going to show how people receive the Holy Spirit, the counterfeit Holy Spirit, and they're going to give the man the gift of tongues, the counterfeit gift of tongues. And they circled around the man. There were over, over 250 men in one room together in California. It's at night. And they circled around the man and they were going to show me how the gift of tongues is given. And they lay hands on a man and have him speak in the unknown tongue, which Sister White says unknown even to God. I want you to know that Lord answers prayer in prison I asked the Lord to shut the man's mouth that he couldn't speak. I asked him in silent prayer. You know, Satan cannot read your thoughts. He can't hear a silent prayer. The man tried to speak in tongues, and he went like this. Mm. His veins came out of his neck, his eyes got as big as saucers, sweating, and he couldn't speak in tongues. And I want you to know that it was like Mount Carmel with the priest of Baal. That's in state prison. Wouldn't you want to be there with Prophet Elijah? The inmates that saw this asked what was happening. The inmate that tried to give the other man the tongues, he asked me what I thought of it. I told him it was worse than a soap opera. Do you have soap operas in England? Okay. That was worse than a soap prophet. That was a counterfeit. I told the man that the Holy Spirit exalts Christ and that exalts self. That's how you could tell the difference between the real Holy Spirit. Those men's eyes were opened and they believed the word of God. I want you to know that you can share the spirit of prophecy unlimitedly in state prison. I want you to know the spirit of prophecy works just like scripture in state prison. And it only works like that if you really believe it yourself. If you go in there and you're doubting, don't go in there. If you don't go in there on a real missionary purpose, don't go in there. I want you to know also that there will be men and women that if people in this room don't reach in state prison, will never walk the streets of gold. It's a privilege to be a Seventh-day Adventist, isn't it? Amen? And it's a greater privilege to be a real Seventh-day Adventist. Amen? And I want you to know that goes along with that is a tremendous, awesome responsibility. Who's going to give the final call? Who's going to give the loud cry? Who's going to reach those men and women in England, in Scotland, in the whole world? Real Seventh day Adventist. You remember the woman at the well? Turn with me to John Ford just a minute more. John chapter 4 I thought of the woman at the well this afternoon John chapter 4 verse 10 we know the story very well but look at this for a moment and think of it in light of the prison ministry Jesus answered and said unto her if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith unto thee give me to drink thou wouldst ask of him and he would have given thee living water. Two questions. It's a good question to ask today. Do we know the gift of God? He said he would give us living water. Testimonies to ministers 226 that the living waters is the life of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about the life of Jesus Christ that we can have it. The good news that Jesus saves us from our sins, even from the hereditary cultivated tendencies to evil. That woman at the well, when she met Jesus Christ and knew the real Jesus Christ, what did she do? What did she do? Anybody? What did she do? She went into town, didn't she? And what did she do in town? She told everybody what happened the whole town came out. If we've known Jesus Christ and received the gift of God and have had this living waters, we can go into state prison and those men will come out of Babylon. By the grace of God, I propose that we can organize a prison ministry in the British Isles. And you'll know how to reach those men with the truth. I believe that the real Seventh-day Adventists are the real Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? You like that? That woman who went into town and told everybody about this man who knew everything that she had ever done, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She became a real Jehovah's Witness. And I believe the real Seventh-day Adventist if I could read from Desire of Ages page 140 before I close (laughs) you know when Jesus sent out the disciples after he ordained them He said, I sent you out as sheep in the midst of what? Wolves? And then he said something else. He said, beware of men. I want you to know that if you're going to go into prison as a a representative of Jesus Christ, you've got to depend upon Jesus Christ only. Okay? And we read in Desire of Ages, it says, God is dishonored and the gospel is betrayed when his servants depend upon the counsel of men who are not under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Thinking about the experience of Nathaniel, listen to this. Desire of Ages 140-141. If Nathaniel had trusted for the rabbi for guidance, he would have never found Jesus. Did you know that? Nathaniel would have never found Jesus. It was by seeing and judging for himself he became a disciple. So in the case of many today who prejudice holds withholds from good, how different would be the result if they would come and see You can make that invitation. While they trust for guidance of human authority, none will come to a saving knowledge of the truth. There are many who need the ministration of loving Christian hearts. Who are they? Everybody in this room. Many have gone down to ruin who might have been saved if their neighbors, common men and women, had put forth effort for them, personal effort for them. Many are waiting to be personally addressed in the very family, the neighborhood, the town where we live. There is work for us to do as missionaries for Christ. If we are Christians... This work will be our delight. No sooner is one converted than there is born within him a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. All who are consecrated to God will be channels of light. God makes them his agents to communicate to others the riches of his grace. My time's gone. Give us one more
1: illustration, Larry, of some of your prison experiences of conversion.
0: I work with groups like the Black Muslims, who are sworn to destroy Christianity. I like to praise the Lord for what he's doing in the life of Charles Dunn. Charles Dunn's a black man in California. Charles Dunn was a heavy drug dealer. I mean, Charles Dunn uh, deal drugs like uh, Safeway sells bananas. Okay? And Charles Dunn one day was selling drugs in Berkeley, California. Charles Dunn uh, a truck A car drove up in front of him to buy the drugs. and said, do you have the drugs? He says, yes, I do. He handed the drugs to the man, and the man in the car reached out with a big giant knife about this long and stuck it right through him. And Charles Dunn, bleeding profusely, um, pulled out his three fifty-seven Magnum revolver and chased the car down the street and emptied the gun on the car. The car ran into a telephone pole. Charles, bleeding still, pulled out another cylinder for his gun and emptied that gun also. He went to the hospital that afternoon and lied and told him that he had fallen upon a knife by accident. Within five hours, he was back on the street again selling drugs. Now, Charles' mother knew about this and what his activities were. And Charles' mother said, Charles, I'm either going to put you in the hands of God or bury you. And she put him in the hands of the Lord. And three hours later, the police came and took him away. Now, Charles Dunn, if he was here, he'd give a testimony what Jesus Christ could do in his life. And Charles Dunn never thought in a million years he'd run into a real Seventh-day Adventist. In prison, you have every teaching you can imagine. Sounds like the Adventist church. But there, you hear it from every chaplain you can imagine. You hear that everyone's going to heaven. Only believe you're going to heaven. You go to heaven just like you are, sins and all. Can you imagine what Charles Dunn thought when he ran into me? I want you to know, it's not me. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I'll tell you, Charles Dunn, you would think today he's a Bible scholar. Charles Dunn was one of those men who hasn't eaten for 25 years. Charles Dunn never even heard about the great controversy. Charles Dunn's read it four times. Charles Dunn can quote from the great controversy more than most Adventists can. When Charles Dunn found the Desire of Ages, he found pure gold. And I want you to know that he's giving studies now. He'll be out in December, and he's going to go for a touchdown for Jesus Christ. He's going to go down the streets. He's going to go back to his neighbors and friends, like each one of us can do. And I want you to know that that Jesus Christ can do the same thing for Charles Dunn he can do for each one of us. He must do for each one of us. Do you believe we're in a crisis? I do. Do you believe we're just ready to have the Sunday laws? Do you believe we're in an emergency situation? I do. I believe that the second coming of Jesus is closest than we've ever dreamt of. And I want to read a quote. Now, this is a challenge, okay? It challenges me, so it should challenge you. Volume 3 of the Testimonies, page 281. If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, who? Okay. Is doing nothing in case of an emergency. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis. And we're in a religious crisis. If you don't think so, see me after the meeting. Indifference and neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and is equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. Volume 3, 281. If I could read one one short poem, I found this in this wonderful book by Mead McGuire about sin and about victory, okay? This is what happens in prison worth. When Moses led his people from Egypt, Egypt's sunny plain, when bondage sore and grievous and hardship and toil and pain, they soon began to murmur against the sovereign will, forgetting God's deliverance. We find them sinning still. When Moses on the mountain had talked with God alone, receiving his commandments on tables made of stone, the people brought their jewels and sacrifice did kill the golden calf they worshipped and kept on sinning still. How often, when your dear ones were lying near death, you earnestly entreated, with every passing breath, "O oh, Father, spare my darling, I will do thy will." Your father was heard and answered, your prayer was heard and answered, and yet you're sinning still. When sickness overtook you. When sorely racked with pain, you said if God would spare you, you'd bear the cross again. He gave you strength of body, He gave you strength of will, but you forgot your promise, and you are sinning still. How graciously the Savior has lengthened out your days. His mercy, never ending, is guiding all your ways. Oh, brother, heed the warning, your broken vows fulfill. Least death should overtake you and find you sinning still. Oh, flee the wrath impending and learn his gracious will. Let Jesus, coming quickly, find you, should find you sinning still. Praise God for the victory that overcometh the world.
1: The souls in prison are just as precious to God as we are, and uh, we're grateful. We Hope International has a prison ministry. We have uh, a lady in charge. She organizes every week. We're in about five prisons in the state of Washington, and the Lord has richly blessed that. She is a choir director, and so she goes into, into prisons and organizes a choir, and it has a tremendous effect. I appreciate Larry sharing that with us because I believe that uh, we need uh, to go into the prisons everywhere. You remember when Jesus was saying, speaking, you remember he said, you visited me in prison. And I think that we need to have a prison work everywhere now that these men may have the opportunity of hearing the message. Now... I was going to speak on the seven essentials, the holy living. It's it's an hour and a half sermon, and I have about 15 minutes. (laughs) But um, let me just give you the first part of it. I'll give you the seven things to pray for, and, and when I come back next time, I'll preach the rest. Years ago, it's been 20 years ago, my boy was drafted into the United States Army to go to Vietnam. And uh, for the first time in my life, I really felt uh, totally incapable of meeting such an emergency. And I began to pray like I'd never prayed before and I began to study like I'd never studied before. And I began to shave in the morning and look in the mirror, and I didn't like what I was seeing because I saw myself as something that I was not pleased with. I had been a man that had accomplished things. I had built churches. I had uh, held evangelistic meetings. I would baptized lots of people, and I uh, had a ministry that uh, conference presidents always uh, counted me as a good statistical man to have on the team. But I found out that as I shaved, that I was doing things to promote Ron Spear rather than Jesus Christ. And I believe it was there that I had a real conversion. And this led me to study, because I've always studied, but I studied for a different reason. I studied to fill my soul. Before that, I studied so I'd always have the reputation of being a good preacher. And now I began to study to fill my own soul and I began to cry out to God because my boy had gone to Vietnam, and being a very intelligent young man, he was, uh, they put him in intelligence school, and he had graduated out of 200 men t- uh, at the top of his class, the top man of his class. He had been given a command, and, uh, and uh, he had been sent behind enemy lines. And if you know what that means, it's probably the most dangerous duty that you can serve in the armed forces. He spent six months behind enemy lines. He said, Dad, I, spent, I slept at night so close I could smell them. And in all of this time, this preacher's soul was in agony because... Your own flesh and blood, your children, are the most precious thing in the world to you. And uh, I loved that young man more than I loved my life. And I promised the Lord that if he'd bring him home, that I'd serve him all the days of my life. I said, God, save him for eternity, save him for eternal life. And uh, the days went by. And one day he came home He had served about ten and a half months and uh, he uh, he was married have had a baby the baby had been born while he was overseas and So at the time I was pastoring in the, in Hawaii. We had received a call to go back to uh, Africa I speak an African language. I speak Swahili and the converts asked me if I'd return. And so we'd agreed to turn. We had sold our homes. Our boys were small when we went to Africa the first time in the 50s, and they spoke Swahili very fluently, too, and they loved Africa. And so when our boy came home, I'll never forget. He, We uh, gathered in a big uh, high school over auditorium, and uh, the buses brought the boys off the planes, and they came filing in, and you can imagine the 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 experience of seeing your son after ten and a half months of combat. his wife was there and it was a joyous reunion of course he held the baby in his arms and it was a wonderful time that we had together uh, my wife and I did the babysitting and him and his wife went out to enjoy the sightseeing of Hawaii we got one of the best motel rooms and, that we could find and and uh the days slipped by very swiftly because their r and r were only five days and uh, i'll never forget the day that i put him on the airplane again my his wife accompanied me and we drove him to the airport my wife stayed home with the baby and uh the plane was delayed so for about two hours we they him and his wife walked around the airport and uh, we walked. I walked with him some of the time, and uh, finally the loudspeaker announced that uh, the plane was, planes were ready to leave, and so I can still remember the event. He, he was a very strong young man. He was more than six feet tall and well-built and uh, heavy-muscled young man. Um, he jumped over the banister and he reached around, picked up his wife up, picked her and gave her one last hug. And then he ran for the door. I'm sure it must have taken every bit of his willpower to do that. He, uh, he got to the door and looked back and then he came back once again and did it again. And then he ran out. And as I looked at those boys, several hundred of them filing out to the airplane, I said, some of those boys probably won't come back. But it never dawned on me that mine would be the one that didn't return. Thirteen days later, we'd held an evangelistic series and baptized a number of people, and one of them had a marriage problem, and I was out very late working with, the, with a couple And I came home probably between 11 and 12 o'clock at night and walked into my wife's arms, tears streaming down her face, and I just said, Is he dead? And she just nodded, and my whole world collapsed. I'll never forget that night because I stood there looking at the stars and saying, God, how come, why, what for? I mean, you preserved his life all of those times in combat. I mean, he went through some horrible experiences. He had many of his men shot away from him. And he told uh, experience after experience how the Lord had delivered him. And uh, he told one time that he walked into a bunker and he said that a Cong opened up with an automatic weapon from about 10 feet. Well, you know, that we just cut you in two. And yet the Lord protected him. He told us of another experience how that one time that his... His company had fallen into... Uh, uh, had uh, just uh, came into a rifle company that had been shot to pieces. So dead and wounded were laying all over the place, and he said the captain of that rifle company hollered for somebody to go get a boy that had just been shot. And he said he waited for a few minutes. Nobody went in, and so he said, uh, I jumped in. He, his company, his group, had, he'd brought them in to help support. And uh, so... He said, I ran in, Dad, and he said, the bullets were flying between my legs and through my clothes. And he said, it never got touched. And he fell down alongside of this boy, and he rolled him over, and he looked at him, and he was one of his friends. They had gone in training together, and my boy had gone into intelligence school, and this boy had gone into a rifle company. And he said, Dad, he said, I just laid there and cried like a baby. And he said, I'd seen them mutilate our boys so badly, he said, I was determined that it wouldn't happen to him. And so he said, I picked him up and put him on my back, and he said, I ran out with him. And he said, again, the bullets were flying between my legs and through my clothes." But he said, Dad, I never got touched. Today in my, one of the drawers of my desk in my study is a lot of medals that were hit or the bravery in which he uh, survived many of them, but he didn't survive the last one. The last thing that he did was to leave his men behind and race into a shot-down helicopter and try to pull out the pilot that had been, that had been killed. Of course, he didn't know it was dead. But, and in doing that, he gave his life. And that night, as I looked at the stars, I said, God, why, why? Why a man, a young man in his youth, so strong, so intelligent, so with his whole life before him, with his family? God, why couldn't it have been me? And then I said to God, I said, I will never preach again until again, you explain it to me. And there in that moment as I looked at the stars that night between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, God wrote it into my mind. He said, you prayed to have him for eternity. You prayed to bring him home. I brought him home, and now you can have him for eternity. While he was home on those five days, he made a new commitment to God. He said, Dad, the day I'm out of Vietnam, I'm back in the church. And so I, for 20 years now, I have clung to that, those promises that God has made to me. And I have determined by God's grace I'll be true to my promise to him. Amen. And I suppose that sometimes God has to bring us human beings through some hard places, even walking through the valley of the shadow sometimes to get us into the right direction and to get us to what we should do. And I suppose if that tragedy hadn't happened, it may be that Ron Spears' life would have been different. It may be that I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. It may be that I wouldn't be the editor of the firm Foundation magazine. I don't know. But I know that God knows best, and I have never questioned God again. It was in those hours and those days that uh, that I was on my knees praying for my son that God taught me a lot about prayer. I've never forgotten that experience, and so I'll relate it to you today. The first thing that God taught me to pray for is to give my will to Him every month. But before I could do that, I must first confess my sins... Abhor my sins and ask God to keep me from sin And then I prayed God give, I give you my will today I do it now And God took my will And surrounded me with that impregnable fortress of his law The next thing that I prayed for every day Was that God would make me a humble man Because I wasn't humble I was proud of what I could do, of what I could accomplish. With the talents that God had provided me with, I could accomplish things. And uh, I was proud of those accomplishments, and I said, God, make me humble. Give me the humility of Jesus Christ in my life. And God began to gradually take Ron Spear out of himself, and in its place he began to put Jesus in his place, in my place. And then I prayed to God to give me love for the word of God and the spirit of prophecy and fill me up with it and then give me wisdom so that I can explain it to others. And God began to put into my mind these beautiful promises of the Lord. And I began to study the spirit of prophecy. And I began to spend hundreds of hours studying and praying and going through these books carefully and prayerfully. And God began to write things into my mind that hadn't been there before. And then I began to pray, God, give me lover, love for others just like Jesus loves them. And then we, I began to see the miracle that I could love even those that I had hated, that I hated before. I could begin to love them. I began to love my enemies. And then I prayed, God, give me patience and give me love. And give me faith, the faith of Jesus in my life. And God be as he removes Ron Spear from Ron Spear as he put Jesus' faith in Ron Spear. And then I began to pray, God, send the Holy Spirit a double portion of it on me. And God began to answer those prayers. And that was the changing of Ron Spear. And the reason that I'm here today to speak to you is because God answered those prayers. If God had not answered those prayers, I'm sure I would not be present today. And every day that I thank God for the way he's answered the prayers. Over the years, I've seen the mighty hand of God working in my life. Yes, I've seen terrible disappointment. When I came back from Africa in 1972, about two and a half years after my son passed away, I put his little son beside him with a brain tumor. And so they lay side by side, waiting for the resurrection. You see, I came home on a furlough from Africa and I began to pray because in our presence, his wife had made her promise that if he got killed, that that baby would be raised a Seventh-day Adventist When I came home On furlough I saw that That wouldn't happen And I went back to Africa And I prayed God save little Johnny For Randy And it was I'll never forget Right under Kilimanjaro I was holding we uh, year end Year end meetings And uh, we had some of the division officers With with us And uh, The mission plane flew in. The pilot handed me a cablegram. I opened it and read it, and I looked at the face of the pilot. The cablegram said, little Johnny's dying of a brain tumor. Could you please come home? And I remember my words. I said, a man should never pray unless he's ready for the answer. I went back from my furlough praying, God save little Johnny for Randy, and I saw my answer. We flew home. My wife is a nurse, and she sat beside him for two months, telling him the stories of Jesus, preparing him for death. And he lays day alongside of his daddy. When I'm in California, I usually go by and see the graves. And as I pray over that grave, I know that one day that earth will part at the command of Jesus, and they'll come forth in life everlasting. And that's what prayer will do, friends. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes things. Prayer changed me. And prayer can change you. May God help us to be changed is my prayer. Today I travel the world preaching this marvelous truth because God gives me the strength, the energy, the wisdom, the skill to carry on Day by day. Today I wish that I was home with my wife. It would be much, so much nicer to be with her. But it is God's plan that I should be with you. And so I always am willing to carry out God's plan. I have a lovely wife. She's a beautiful girl. I told her the other day before I left, you know, when I married you were the most beautiful woman in the world, and you're still the most beautiful woman in the world, to me, she is. Larry's met her. Richard's met her. And uh, she's home praying for Ron today. And I'm grateful I God gave me a good wife. She's not perfect like I'm not perfect yet. But we're planning to spend eternity together. And I want to say that prayer changes people because prayer has changed me. Prayer not only changed me, it gave me power. Power with men and power with God. And let me tell you, friends, today we're living in the most urgent hour in the history of the world. And God needs men and women that will serve Him. Men and women that will pray and then men and God and women that will work with diligence and with, with self-denial uh, and sacrifice so they might bring souls to the kingdom of God. Amen. And so on that great day when time and eternity meet, I have an appointment. I don't know where I'll be, whether God may even have to take me out of the grave, but I can be sure of one thing. Thank you so much. I can be sure of one thing, And that God has promised, and he's never broken a promise. And I'll see that young man again. We'll walk along the river of life together. That little grandson will grow up like leaves, uh, like uh, a calf in the stalk, like the healing of the nations. He'll, He'll eat of those leaves of the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life, and he'll grow up. And I'll have the privilege, the privilege that I've been denied all these years, I'll have the privilege of being with him. My other son is an airline captain. He flies the big jets. And uh, he has never married. He's 40 years old nearly. But uh, I I love children. And go, I'm going to have that marvelous privilege of an eternal life, of seeing that little grandson grow up. And, friends, I'm planning on it. I'm working for it. And I pray that you'll work for it and plan for it too, because it's going to happen soon. May God be with us. And may our prayers be answered Friends as you make your life Submitted to God so completely That God can work the miracle in your life That he wants to work He worked it in my life And I know he'll work it in yours Shall we pray God in heaven we're so grateful That we have a God who answers prayer We're so grateful we have a God That will teach us to pray and Lord, we pray most earnestly for this dear group, Lord, that we've met with, we've preached to. God, we may never meet again like this, but God, we want to meet again upon the sea of glass or upon the river, along the river of life as we stand there with our dear Lord and Savior Jesus, as he plucks the fruit from that marvelous tree and puts it into our hands and tells us that we'll live forever. God, may there not be one of us missing on that day. Encourage their hearts. Keep their eyes so single to your glory that day by day they can grow in grace and daily be filled with thy spirit and finally saved in your kingdom is my prayer. Today in Jesus' name, amen.